Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you just have to throw up your hands and say, now what? What do I do now? Maybe you've walked through an event or a circumstance and you're just not sure what to do next. Maybe you've been fully convinced of something that has happened in the past and fully convinced of something that will happen in the future, but not sure what you're supposed to do today. Sometimes you just wonder, just give me my marching orders and let me get at it. Well, this is where I think Isaiah has us right now. And he has us here because God wants us here. This is why Isaiah's letter has been so profitable for us as New Covenant believers, those who come, come to faith after Christ has come and lived and died and been resurrected and ascended, because it speaks to our lives, it speaks to our situation. And we know this, we know this because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for accomplishing these discipling objectives, these growing in holiness objectives in our life. But sometimes we come to certain passages of Scripture and we say, nah, not that one. That, that one doesn't have anything to do with me. But Isaiah is here this morning to answer the question, what do we do today? If we believe what we've learned in these, these pinnacle chapters of this section of Isaiah, maybe the pinnacle chapters of the entire book, but definitely the last 10 chapters, then we know that in chapter 61, we have learned about the, what the Messiah intends to do for those who are repentant. Remember, at the end of chapter 59, we learned that God is going to arise, and he's going to rise both judgment and salvation. And that's the way the, the scripture always brings it that there will be judgment of, his, of, his, of the people who are his enemies and salvation for the people who are redeemed. And so we learn that's going to happen and it only happens to the repentant ones. And then in chapter 61, we learn about, um, it, all through chapter 60, I'm sorry, we learn about this future glory that's going to come and what God intends to do through his people and remember, at this stage in Isaiah, we're not just talking about Israelites. We're talking about all people who have faith and have repented. All people, all the nations. And so then we find out also that in chapter 61, that, this is, that Jesus has said that the year of the Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee, is fulfilled in him. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 61. And we find out all these beautiful things that are supposed to happen in the church. And we get filled up with this vision. And then we walk outside. Then we see the news. We see the craziness in the world. We see the sin within the church. We think, that's not the church Isaiah is talking about. Then we see the sin in our own heart. We say, what am I supposed to do with this? Am I part of the righteous people that God is raising up by the work of his Messiah? And so we look around at the world and we look at our heart and we say, wait a minute, the church, God's people doesn't look very powerful right now. They, they, they look weak. They look marginalized in society. We could be just like Israel crying out to God, why are you letting this happen? Because the nations are impugning your character because they see us under your judgment. And we could cry out in the same way, God, how long, O oh Lord, will you do this? For the nations are beginning to hate you. We see this in our own country, don't we? People who profess Jesus pursuing evil blatantly in public and, and putting policy in place to do just that. And we say, wait a minute. 
How long, O oh Lord, will you let your character be stamped upon and trampled upon by these people? Well, Yahweh feels that in us. And so he speaks through his servant, through Isaiah, to tell us what we're to be doing today. Today, between the time of Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, we have marching orders. These marching orders fit the people in Isaiah's day, the end of the 8th, beginning of the 7th century B.C. They needed these words, that they hear these words about what God is going to do, and yet they're living in a world where it doesn't look like that's happening. They're still under wicked kings and enemies that, that are overtaking them. And then they walk through and they find out that the southern kingdom is taken into captivity. They need these words as well as they're taken into captivity. What do I do today? It seems like you've taken your favor off of your people, God. What do we do now? Isaiah answers that question in this chapter. But then when they are released from captivity and they come back into their land and they start working again and they face opposition and none of these promises seem to be coming to fruition after the captivity in Babylon. And so they need to hear these words and we need to hear these words because the year of the Lord's favor was inaugurated in Christ that jubilee of jubilees, as Daniel 9 talks about, is inaugurated in Christ so that his kingdom is inaugurated and the work of salvation is, is running rampant in the world. Satan is bound so the nations are no longer um, blinded by, uh, by, by, the, by the, uh, the lack of truth. They can now see truth when it is, when it is put before them. And this is the marching orders for us as well. This is what chapter 62 talks about. So it has our ear, doesn't it? What do we do today? Well, can I just summarize before we even get into it? We trust in what the Lord has promised. We pray and we preach. Simple enough? We trust in what the Lord has promised. We pray and we preach. Turn to Isaiah chapter 62. I'm going to read these 12 verses if you'll stand while I do. I'm just going to give you the beginning of this here. I think this is the Messiah speaking in all 12 verses. There's disagreement on that. You may have studied it and come to a different conclusion. But I think this is the Messiah. This is that suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus himself speaking to us in all these verses. This helps you listen with that in mind. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For Yahweh delights in you and your hand and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, 
I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put Yahweh in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Yahweh has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to, to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise Yahweh. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. In these verses, we hear the messianic servant proclaim three commitments concerning the redemption of his people through Yahweh's faithfulness. Three commitments concerning the redemption of his people through Yahweh's faithfulness. Now I have these three commitments just put in three sentences that are a little bit compact. So I've changed my outline a bit. It's going to be the same as what you see on the screen, but I'm splitting it up a little bit more to make it more manageable. Uh, just to, to tell you where we're going, the messianic servant commits himself to constant work. The messianic servant commits his watchmen to give Yahweh no rest. And the messianic servant commits his people to go into the world. So first, the messianic servant commits himself to constant work. And we also, in this section, answer the questions, for how long and to what end? For how long and to what end? Look at verse 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Now, there is great discussion on whether this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of his people, whether this is Yahweh speaking, or whether this is the servant speaking. And I think it's the messianic servant. I think it's very much tied to verses um, 10 and 11 of the chapter before. Very, the imagery, the language, it's tied together with that. And it makes the most sense to me in the context to think this is the messianic servant giving these orders, telling what he's going to do, reminding the people what God has done and what he will do, and also calling the people to what they should do. And they're all tied together. I hope you saw right in the middle of that reading that Yahweh is at work. It's his power at work. It's his strong right arm. And that's what we are trusting in. So everything in this chapter that concerns us about our role flows from Yahweh's role and the servant's role and their faithfulness in doing so. So let's not get caught up in the fact that this might be a, a call to work out something that we have to work out on our own. What we're doing is participating in the work of God and doing it obediently because of his faithfulness. So look at there, the Zion's sake, I, the Messiah, will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So silent, quiet, not silent, and not quiet. 
Now, these ideas have both just not only the, the, the idea of speaking, but the idea of action. If you, if you are sitting at home doing nothing, you might say you're sitting quietly. And you're not just talking about not saying anything. You're talking about not doing anything as well. So now we have these negated that the messianic servant says, I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. Remember that we learned back in Isaiah 11 that this servant, the Messiah, brought to us in chapter 11, he will carry out vengeance by the sword of his mouth and the breath of his voice. Remember, he will carry out his vengeance by speaking. We see that also in Revelation as well, that when, the, when chapter 19 and, and in chapter 1, uh, Jesus is described as the one who carries out his work by the breath of his mouth and the sword that's coming out of his mouth. So his words have power. It's the same phrase that's used of, of our triune God when they breathed out creation. The word of God breathed out, the word, breathed out word of God carried out creation. So we see it in Isaiah, and we also see it in other places, that even when God is speaking, his words have power. His word will what? Not come back void. Because when he speaks, it is truth. So the servant, who is God, is now speaking in the same way, and he will not cease to speak. But he also will not cease to act. Remember that God has sent his son and his son came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the father and he continues to what? Take a nap and let the world go on its way. That's not what he does, right? He's ruling and reigning. He's ruling and reigning through his people, carrying out the advancement of his kingdom. He's sustaining all things together, as Colossians 1, chapter 1 says. He's working always, constantly, the will of his Father to redeem his people and keep the world all together until he returns again and brings us the new heavens and new earth. So this is the Messiah saying he will never rest. Now, he said earlier at, at, at other times that he has been resting, but he will no longer. He will be active. So the resting in this situation has both the idea of vengeance, the word of his mouth, but also of salvation, that he is working salvation for his people. And we've already learned that, uh, from especially as we got to the fourth servant song, and then we've seen it described, how this is going to work ever since then. So this has been the theme of Isaiah, hitting its, its um, pinnacle here. Yahweh has sent his son, who will never cease working to redeem his people and sustain the world in which they live. And he makes this promise right at the beginning. And he mentions Zion and Jerusalem. Now here, we know we're talking about what? All of God's people, right? All Jew, Gentile, all the nations from the furthest islands, from the furthest coastlands. It doesn't matter where. God is redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. And this is all forecast and prophesied for us all through Isaiah. So don't get caught up. This is Jerusalem only. It is believing Jerusalem, the believing remnant. And it is also all those who come to the mountain, which we were introduced to as early as chapter 2, were we not? This has been a constant theme of Isaiah. So then we answer the when question. We say the messianic servant commits himself to constant work. For how long? Until his people's salvation and righteousness shine before the nations. Look there at the second half of verse 1. We see the until. 
We're going to see in this verse, remember we've had these reversals, right? Instead of this, we have this. Instead of this, we have this. That idea carries here with different language that God is about turning everything we see upside down because when it's unrighteous, he intends to make his people righteous. And that's what's being brought here. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And then he says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. So this is what we've learned all through Isaiah. We've also seen this in some Psalms that we have looked at as well. This is also what we see in Revelation 21. The nations are brought to the new Jerusalem and they come in bringing their wealth and we know they're chosen and elected and saved by God because we also know in, that, in those verses in chapter 21 and 22 that no unrighteousness comes into the new Jerusalem. So this imagery is carried here for us, and we're reminded of what we just learned a couple of chapters ago, aren't we? Remember, I've told you in 60, 61, and 62, we are repeating images that we have seen over and over. So I'm not going to take you to all of those different places, but I want to remind you of those places. Remember just a couple of chapters ago when the light, when the brightness of God was going to shine on the darkness uh, of the people, but also the other people would see the light shining on them. So it's a shining on and in them, but also through them. That's, again, the picture that's being brought. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So here we have, when does this happen? When does this take place? Until this happens, the Messiah says, I will keep working. I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. So this is where our eschatology comes in, does it? The already, not yet, that we've talked about so much, that that is where we're heading, and we need to always keep that in mind. We are heading to the new Jerusalem where we, the people of God, worship face-to-face with God with no sin and no death and no dying. That's where we're heading into the perfection that God will wrought through Christ, through his work on the cross and redeeming a people for himself. And yet, we taste it here, do we not? We taste it in fellowship in the body. We taste it in the way that the love of God unites us together, allows us to have deep and intimate relationships. We taste it when the preaching of the gospel, uh, God sees fit to have the Holy Spirit draw men and women unto himself, and the kingdom grows. We taste it there. We taste it when we're sustained through times of sorrow, through times of death and struggle and sin. We taste that perfection now, but it's future that it is completely consummated and completely perfect. So we have this comfort today, don't we? Jesus is working. He is not silent. He is not sleeping. He has not just wound up the world and let it go. He is constantly working to carry out the will of God to redeem his people and sustain us unto our inheritance. Now, do not get me wrong. That sustaining is no promise to live forever, is it? That sustaining is a spiritual sustaining to know that we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus because the work is already finished. And we know that that promise is true from many places in Scripture, but right here Isaiah reminds us the Messiah never stops working to do the Father's will. So this is foundation for us, isn't it? No matter what we're going to hear later, we have to remember these truths. This is foundational. And the nations, even though... It's fully accomplished in the new heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It's happening now. 
Those who are enemies of God are seeing the light of Christ through his people, and God is using that witness. Now, now we want to be careful here. There was a movement a few years ago of this lifestyle evangelism that you really don't have to say anything, but just live in a certain way and people will come to Christ. People aren't saved by the way you live your life. They're saved by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to live in such a way that doesn't negate that testimony of the gospel. Amen? Which means our life matters, but we don't keep our mouth shut. If, if the Messiah is not being silent, we're not silent. We are preaching the gospel as we go. So as we live in this life, we are still seeing the already part of this work as God brings people into the kingdom through our witness and through the relationships that we have in his timing, through his power as he sees fit. So the until is starting now and it will finish in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse two. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory. Again, we've seen these images already before. We won't belabor them now, but this continues as well. Everyone in the world sees God working. It just matters whether they suppress that truth with a lie or whether they bow before it, as Romans 1 says. Look at verse 3. To what end? Well, I guess in the middle of verse 2. To what end? For his people to have a new name and for Yahweh to delight in them. And you shall be called by a new name, right in the middle of verse 2. Now, we'll find out about that name a little bit later, but remember what we've already learned. Names are important, right? God gives names and changes names to reflect who he's changed people into, whether that's Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel or Simon to Peter. Names represent something in an ancient economy. It means it, it represents something for us as well. When we choose names for our children, we choose them based on, on meanings that we expect and we pray that will overshadow their life. So this is an important thing. You'll be called by a new name. But already in verse 26 of chapter 1, we find out that Jerusalem will become a city of righteousness. It's also called the faithful city. And they started that way, but then their sin led them away from that. So this is even where Israel started. They were established in righteousness. So they were the city of righteousness, the faithful city in chapter 60, verse 14, they're called the city of Yahweh, and we're talking about all of God's people represented in this. So we see this throughout the book, that the name is important. Look at the last line of verse 2. And the mouth of Yahweh will give that name. You shall be called by a new name, and the mouth of Yahweh will give. So we'll see that name in a minute. Look at verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? The crown doesn't sit on anybody's head, the Messiah's or Yahweh's or anyone else's. It's in the hand of Yahweh. It's the beauty of his people when they live in the righteousness in which they've called. And that is held out as beautiful to the nations. It's an offering in the hand of God. That seems to be the imagery behind this, that, that God will, will, the beauty that he is creating in his people will be a crown, a diadem. The parallelism saying the same thing here in the hand of our God. So that is what the people will be drawn to. Why? Because God has done that in us. Look at verse four. You shall no more be termed forsaken 
Azuba is the word. If you Maybe your ver- version has it written in there, or maybe it has it in the footnotes. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. Shamama. So this has happened over and over in Isaiah, hasn't it? Their land has met the curse, the covenant curse of a faithful God, a God who's faithful to his covenant, to bring the curses of Deuteronomy 28 to bear on them when they are disobedient. So they have been called forsaken. They have been called desolate. The forsaken is their status before God. Desolate is what it looks like to the world. And remember, in Isaiah and several other places that we've looked at, this is where the world, uh, God's people cry out to him and say, how long will you do this? Because the nations are making fun of you because you are not sustaining your people, but yet God is faithful. Even his covenant curses reveal his faithfulness. But, here's one of those inversions, one of those instead ofs, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, Hepzibah, and your land, your land will be called, we can say, married, Beulah. So these are little weird phrases. Those are names that we don't really think of naming our children. I'm tempted to ask the Davises, these names come into your mind here? <laughs> Todd's saying no. You like the meaning, but not the sound, right? Yes, yes. Hepzibah and Beulah. If you've been around gospel music at all, you know there was a gospel song talking about Beulah land. There's an old hymn also written with different words called Beulah land. And this is really a wonderful term. It is, it is a term that is, that is telling us that God is possessing his people. Now we see married here in the next verse, but I want you to realize this, the, the weirdness that we're trying to decipher here when we keep going and we read words like, for Yahweh delights in you and your land will be married, or verse 5, your young man, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And we think, what in the world does that mean? How are we figuring all this out? Well, know that this, I, this word carries also the idea of possessing. We're talking about relationship here, intimate relationship between God and his people. That's what's being carried out for us. And it is, it is just marked at the very beginning that our name is, as the people of God, my delight is in her. That's our name. That's what God says. Your name is, my delight is in her. So speaking as if Yahweh is speaking, Yahweh delights in his people. We're going to see that again where we find out that he rejoices over his people in a few minutes. So these are the new names that are given. And they're given because God's people are such cool people in themselves, right? They're just so, they're just pretty people. God chooses the pretty ones, right? This is all the work of God and his people. The only way God gives us those names is because God has affected us. He has changed us. He he has set his affections on us, and now he's working his will and his way in our life to make us holy because he is holy. This is the work of God, and these are promises. You see this, right? These are promises that are going, going to be undergird and steady all of the things that are coming before us. So the messianic servant commits himself to constant work for how long? Until these people, people's salvation and righteousness shine before the nations. And to what end? For his people to have a new name and for Yahweh to, to delight in them. Let's finish this up in verse 5. These intimate 
um, images of marriage. Now, we've seen marriage used in Isaiah, and then we've chased a lot of scripture passages to remind us that marriage is a constant picture of God and his people, Christ and his church. So here, we're, we're reading that, but we're also realizing that this is talking about the intimate relationship between God and his people. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, for a nation who has been in um, captivity because of their sin, do you think they felt rejoiced over? Do you think they felt the delight of God through those 70 years? They have not felt that. So these promises will hit them like a freight train. But they also hit us that way, don't they? I mean, how many times in your life do you feel unwanted, unworthy? No matter what those phrases would be, unwanted, unworthy, ugly, not acceptable, rejected, God says, I delight in you and I rejoice over you. Now, what better status could there be? What better promises could there be for us to lift our eyes above our circumstances and be reminded what God thinks of us because of the work of Christ in us? And that's the foundation for all of our change at that point, is it not? We can let go of all of our selfishness because we know the God who created the heavens and the earth delights and rejoices over us. I don't know about you, but there are times I need reminding of that. There are times that I need, be, need to be reminded that even in my sin, Christ's work is sufficient and it's complete and God's promises are not taken away once they're given because he still delights over me because he looks at me and sees his son. Now, don't take that as a license to sin. Do not do that. This is a license to repent but because we serve a God who has loved us to the extent that when we sin against him, he still delights in us because of his son. Now, if that's an invitation to continue to sin, you need to be saved. You, you need to be redeemed. And if it's not that, you need rebuked by those who love you. Because all of this is, is a reminder that Christ's work is finished. So God didn't kill you because of your sin he rejoices over, over you because he's forgiven it in his son. Now, with those kinds of promises, are you ready to do whatever he tells you to do? We are his children, and he loves us. So the messianic servant commits himself to constant work. But secondly, the messianic servant commits his watchmen to give Yahweh no rest. Look at verse 6. And again, we're going to see two questions answered for how long and to what end. But first, we'll see the commitment. Remember, this is still the servant speaking. Verse 6, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Now, this is not a new concept for us either, is it? We've talked about this on several times because Isaiah has used it. And at one time, the watchmen on the wall have been the ones that rejoiced because there was a messenger coming with beautiful feet who brought good news. So they're on the wall watching, and as they watch and as they see God working, they rejoice over that. But then a few chapters later, what do we see? We see the watchmen who are supposed to be watching, and what are they? They're blind. They're supposed to be speaking, warning, but their bark has no bite. They're the dogs that can't bark. 
So we've seen Watchmen in both ways. Watchmen have this idea of protection. And we looked at passages in other prophets of what that Watchman, especially in Jeremiah, of what that Watchman was responsible for and the blood on his hands if he warns or if he doesn't warn. But this gives us a specific, a specific context. The Watchmen... Yes, they're protecting. Yes, they should have turned around. Remember when sin invaded the camp in chapter 56. When sin invaded the camp, they should have been warning. They should have been teaching. They should have been preaching. But they were silent. They were caught up in their own sin, feeding their own bellies. They should have been doing that. But here's what the watchmen are doing at all times. This reminds us of the commands in the New Testament to pray without ceasing, to pray always. So, oh, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I, that is the Messiah, have pointed watchmen all the day and all the night. So they're, they're always on guard. They shall never be silent. Now, that, we're ready for that, aren't we? If our Messiah is never going to be silent, we should never be silent. Now, let me add one other thing here. These watchmen, sometimes I, I hear it taught in certain commentaries and preach that the watchmen in chapter 62 are only the pastors, they're only the teachers. And I disagree with that. This is all of us. All of us have a watching responsibility, Old Testament and New Testament. All of us are assigned to do that. We see in the New Testament that not only the elders are supposed to be protecting the flock, Acts chapter 20, from wolves that arise from without and from within, but the people are to be able to be protecting the flock by judging teaching to be true or false, by recognizing false teachers and dismissing them. So this is all of us here, the, the watchman. This is a commission to all of us. And look at what the commission is. Day and night, never being silent, but what are we to do? You who put Yahweh in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. So those who put Yahweh in remembrance, here's what that word means. We've already seen it used. Um, let me just show you in two places. You can turn there if you want. I'm not going to stay there long. In Isaiah chapter 26, in verse 13, O Yahweh, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. So other lords have have. Uh, ruled over us, but it's your name we bring to remembrance. We're remembering you, but we're also praying. That's what the idea that is cast here. And another place that we see it, not the only places, but another place that we see it is in chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, verse 1, who are called by the name of Israel and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of their God and confess Bring to remembrance the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. So there's a rebuke that they're not praying to God in truth or right. They're praying to God in error, in falsehoods, and in sin. So back in chapter 62, you who put Yahweh in remembrance, it means to mention or invoke Yahweh's name. And so we're being called here to constant prayer, always to be praying. Errol Hulse wrote a book on revival a few years ago called, right out of this verse, Give Him No Rest. And in, out of it, he gave a short history of some revivals, and then he called the church to be praying for revival all the time. This morning, that's what I call you to. The context of this is that God would work through His Messiah to redeem all of His people, that He would do that. And we're called here to day and night be praying to see that happen. 
And now we're not praying just in a vacuum here, are we? We're praying in the, to the same God who has just established himself with his people in a certain way. We're praying to the same God who tells us in just a couple of verses. We'll just look at verse 8. We'll jump ahead just a little bit. Yahweh is sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And then he, what, he, what he swears to is not having covenant curses being given again. So this is all based on the plan of God, the will of God, the power and strength and might of God, and the work of the, of the Messiah. And now we are called to pray that they are faithful in what they do. Do you think God will be faithful to save the elect? Do you think he will? You believe it that much? Of course he will. Isn't that a question that's gigantic? Shouldn't that make us rejoice? God is working through his son to save his people. And he will not fail. All that the Father gives to me, I will lose none, says Jesus. We're called to, to give him no rest here, but we're also called to look out at the white fields and to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would deliver those people that we see in front of us. We take this so lightly. Yes, this is a call to evangelize, but mostly it is a call that we were in constant prayer that God continues his work. Now that's an invitation to pray with success if I've ever heard it in my life. We know God is going to do this and we're called to give ourselves over to pray that he will do exactly what he has promised to do based on his own power. Now let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed for revival? Already not yet, right? This will happen perfectly in the new heavens and new earth, but the not yet's, that's revival. That's where we pray and God through his sovereign mercy and love answers that prayer in waves of salvation that we have not seen before. In your, I, I don't know, Lisa, where are you? Did you choose this for today or is this what was sent to us for today? You chose, thank you. Um, this, is, this is one that sometimes is just sent to us and we put it in. This is on revival in Jonathan Edwards and the first great awakening in the 1700s that happened in his church. Read this. Read this. Go get his account. It talks about his account, the faithful, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton in the seven, late 1730s, uh, or 1750s. What are, let me say the right dates here. 1730s. This was a revival. He started, there were, there were harbingers of it to begin with because there were young people who became convicted not to waste their time and to gather on Thursday nights to pray. So as many revivals, prayer is, start, is the beginning of it. But sometimes you'll hear people say that prayer is all that revival is. It doesn't include preaching at all. Well, that's usually not the case. There is prayer and there's preaching. So Jonathan Edwards, who was always concerned about this, about revival among his people, Jonathan Edwards starts preaching a sermon series on justification by faith. And he preaches it because he's worried that people are trying to have salvation based on their own works. And so the praying and the preaching and God opened the floodgates to have people start being saved. But then guess what happens when that happens? I'm trying to paint the role here of our role to pray all the time. That starts, it's, it starts having souls being saved. And the more people that are saved, and by the hundreds in this small town, that it's, the more people are saved, the more the community has changed and the culture they live in has changed. And then guess what happens? Who gets stirred up when God starts getting glory? Satan. Satan. And so Satan starts moving. 
There's a young man that tries to cut his own throat. Then a few months later, Edward's own uncle commits suicide and was successful. Then all of a sudden we have people all over town thinking Satan is telling them to kill themselves. And all of a sudden Edward starts thinking, where did I fail? And yet at the same time, he's writing down what's going on. And he's doing this both in defense of what's happening there, but he also is in this writing and others, he is also trying to judge other revivals that sort of... of, uh, pop up out of nowhere, and whether they're true or not. He's giving us evaluative tools on whether that revival is actually of God. People start reading that, and it starts being taken, that revival starts being taken to other places, even into England, and people like George Whitfield start preaching, and, and uh, Wesley start preaching, and, and the man starts preaching in Wales at the same time, and a revival comes after that, all because God works in one place. Prayer and preaching of the word. Now, we could go through revivals all throughout history. It's not the point of this. Here's the point. Are you praying for that to happen here? Am I praying for that to happen here? Are we praying all day and all night that God would honor his promises here and begin to redeem people by the dozens or the hundreds or the thousands? He does it on his plan and on his time. If you grew up in one of those churches that had a revival every year, that's not a revival. Now, God may have chosen to break out in one of those, but we don't schedule revivals, do we? We don't say, we're going to have a preacher who's fiery, preaches hell and damnation, we're going to have him in, we're going to meet for five nights, and we're going to have a revival. You may waste your time. Our role is to pray that God would do that through the everyday means of the preaching of the word through this Sunday morning worship, through your life, through the way you raise your children, the way that you let your light shine into the world so people look to you and you have an opportunity to use your voice to preach Christ. What a wonderful experience it would be if God saw fit to send his spirit in that kind of a way because we believed the promises and obeyed the commands to give him no rest. He is a God who's doing it and will do it. What a joy it is to be part of that by prayer. Well, we answer the question for how long and to what end. Messianic servant commits his watchman to give Yahweh no rest until his people are established as the praise of the earth. Look at verse 6. Verse 7, I'm sorry. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, that is God's people, and makes it a praise in the earth. So establishing it means everything that he's promised to do. Make them beautiful. Be established them in their holiness. Their character starts to reflect their king. They're obedient to God. They're bringing him into remembrance all the time. He's establishing his people, and that becomes a praise on the, on the entire earth because the nations then come to the mountain to learn what God has to say about what their life should look like. Verse 8, Yahweh has sworn by his right hand, Now that idea of swearing, for God to swear by his right hand. Remember in Hebrews chapter 6, we can turn there, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. This gives us a picture of what is going on there. If it makes you uncomfortable and this is a new phrase for you, it shouldn't be if you've been here for any length of time, but maybe you're new with us and this is new for you. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So these two unchangeable things, his word and his oath, the idea is this. When we, in in human terms, if we swear by something, we're swearing by something that's greater than us. God can swear by no one because no one is greater than himself, so he swears by himself. It's a way to give us encouragement, as Hebrews 6 tells us, encouragement that God's promises stand firm, his word and his oath. So back in chapter 62 of Isaiah, when it says the Lord has sworn by his right hand, Yahweh has sworn by his right hand and his mighty right arm, what he's sworn is that what he's promising will happen. So again, we're reminded we are made beautiful in the hand of Yahweh because that's what he promises to do. Because of the work of Christ in our life, we are a witness for him. Because he is redeeming a people for himself and the Savior takes no rest, we should take no rest in praying that God's will, which he's promised and taken an oath by himself, will happen to pray that that takes effect. And sometimes we get to experience it here, and we will definitely experience it as part of our inheritance. Now, what does he swear by his mighty right arm and his right hand? Look at verse 8. This is to what end? The end is that the nations become his worshipers, as Yahweh has sworn by his power to accomplish. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise Yahweh, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. This is the promise from Yahweh, brought to us by the Messiah. And these promises not to do this anymore are the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 28, verses 30 to 33. These are the promises of God. I will have, you will not bear the fruit of your womb. You will not be able to taste the fruit of your wine. You will not be able to eat the the grain of your fields because I will bring enemies in to overtake you when you disobey me. Because you are my people and I am your God. You disobey me, this is what I will do. And this is what God has done. And this is what is that Isaiah has shown us over and over. So now the promise is, this work is so sure and so complete that these covenant curses will now be reversed back to where the blessings were earlier in the chapter. Because earlier in chapter 28, in, in verses um, 4 through 11, we see that the blessings of God when his people are obedient include being able to eat of your own vineyards and eat of your own, drink of your own vineyards and eat of your own fields and your wombs will be prosperous and there'll be many children. Those are the blessings of obedience. So here we again, many times in Isaiah, we have the covenant curses in play from a faithful God who is now reversing them, not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we are do anything in ourselves, but because he has done it through his son in us. 
But look, it goes even further. Look at your text there. Those who garner it, you, anybody else who comes in, those who garner it, those who benefit from it, gather it in, shall eat it and praise Yahweh. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. They become worshipers. It's the worshiping language that God is drawing worshipers to himself. This is what we're praying for because the promise has already been made. Messianic servant commits himself to constant work. The messianic servant commits his watchmen to give Yahweh no rest. And finally, the third commitment, the messianic servant commits his people to go into the world. We see that in verse 10a. Go through, go through the gates. We see these double imperatives. Remember, every time we see these, comfort, comfort my people. These are are drawing our attention to the emphasis that God is placing. So we are to go through the gates. Now the context here shows us we're leaving the gates. If you think of the gates of the city, we're not coming into our own gates. We're leaving, and we're going to find out here in a minute that it's preparing the way for the nations to come. So this is the commission. He commits his people to go out of the gates. Go through, go through the gates. And then he tells us why. To prepare the way for the nations to come. Look at the very next line. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up. A second double imperative, double command. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the people's. So this is the language we saw in chapter 40, and we've seen in other places already, and it's used for the idea. In chapter 40, it's used for what? Clear the way, so what happens? So the Messiah comes, right? That, that passage that's used to describe John the Baptist in the, in, the, in the Gospels. So it's preparing for Yahweh to come. But we've also seen it clear the way so that Yahweh can come to us and we can make it to Yahweh. So we're clearing the way, as Hebrews might say, to remove all the, uh, the weight that would cause us to stumble. So this is, this is the call for us as God's people to go in the world and clear the way, both in our own lives, dealing with sin, and in other people's lives, helping them deal with sin, which leads to what? Repentance and faith in the one who will forgive their sin. And this is the call. And it's the double imperative in this verse. Go through, go through, build up, build up. And talking about the highway, which is, it's been used in different ways in Isaiah. Uh, John Oswald summarizes this well. The image of the highway serves this point admirably. Isaiah has used it in several different ways through the book. In 7.3 and in 36.2, it is the place where, with faith, Israel is to face the terror of enemy occupation and destruction. Remember the word highway used. Remember where he takes, Isaiah takes his son and goes up to the aqueduct and he learns the fate and the king says, no, I'm not going to trust in you. In 1923, it is the means by which the nation may come to worship Israel's God. In 33 verse 8 and 59 verse 7, the broken and twisting roadway symbolizes Israel's hopeless estate unless God comes to her aid. In 11.16, 35.8, and 49.11, the highways are the means by which God's people return home from exile and dispersion. And finally, in 40 verse 3, they are the means by which God comes to his people in captivity to oppression the people who are in captivity to oppression and sin. So this is wrapping all those up in together when we talk about the highway. This is God's people who have had their sin dealt with, remembering that they are people whose sin has been dealt with. So to keep that way clear, 
but also to prepare the way for the nations to come in because Yahweh has come and he has promised to shine his light upon the nations and he will do that by holding forth his people in their beauty as they preach. Look at your verse back there in verse 10. Uh, verse, the last line of verse 10. We are commanded, lift up a signal over the peoples. Now what is that signal in Yahweh? Two places. Keep your finger here and turn to chapter 11. This description of the righteous branch many months ago. I, I, I will say, this is the 80th sermon this morning in Isaiah for us. Two years ago this Sunday we started, the second Sunday in February. So two years of Isaiah, 80 sermons, and we're almost finished. I'm not rushing, <laughs> but we are almost finished. Okay, chapter 11, look at verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations. Well, let's, look, let's go back to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of these people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the, of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersion of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So the signal here is who? It is the Messiah. It is the, the root of Jesse. It was the seed of David. This is the root that's there, or the signal that is lifted there. Turn to chapter 49. More recent for us. 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. That picture of all the nations coming with Israel to worship the Lord because he has raised the signal of his Messiah. So don't let this little verse at the end of verse 10 lift up a signal over the peoples escape you. This is your call to lift up Christ to the nations. You are called here not only to pray for God to save his people and to pray for God to make them beautiful and to advance his kingdom. We're not only praying with the promises of God, but God says, I'm using you to do it. Lift up a signal to the nations. Preach the gospel to the nations. Pray and preach. All the time being faithful to what God has said so the covenant curses do not come upon us, not in the way Israel did, but the discipline for our sin. We are praying and we are preaching the entire time because God says, I'm redeeming a people for myself and I will not fail. And I want you, my people, who I adore who I rejoice over, who I delight in to be a part of my work, and I get all the glory. That's a great picture of our Christian life, of what we do now. Look at verse 11. 
the why of the messianic servant committing his people to go into the world is to prepare the way for the nations to come. The how is by preaching the gospel, which we started. Look at verse 11. Behold, Yahweh is proclaimed to the end of the earth. So this is the servant saying what Yahweh, the father, has proclaimed to the entire earth. Say to the sons of Zion, and here's what he tells us to say, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. We've already seen that in several different verses in Isaiah. We've also looked at it being fulfilled completely in Revelation 22, verse 12. And this is his, this is his reward to save the people who are his and to judge the people who are his enemies. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So these are are summary names. Let me say that verse 10, 11, 12 are not only the conclusion to this chapter, but they're the conclusion to chapter 60, 61, and 62, and probably the conclusion going all the way back to chapter 55. This is what it's all been leading to, that God has a plan, he has his people engaged to be a part of that plan, and it will not fail. Salvation is coming, vengeance is coming as well, and then his people will be called the holy people, We've talked about this before, holy because of their character, because God has changed it, but also holy because they've been set apart by God for God. And in this context, to do what? Raise the signal, preach the gospel, and to pray without ceasing, to give him no rest. The redeemed of Yahweh, we are the ones who have been redeemed from our sins by Yahweh for his glory, and we expand his glory by preaching the gospel and praying to him. Listen, here's what the prayer tells us. I see blank faces in this prayer side of things. You know prayer changes things, yes? And you also know God is unchangeable. When we pray, we're asking the king who has all the resources and is in charge of every molecule in the world to do what he intends to do. That's what we're doing when we pray. So when we pray according to his will, will our prayers be answered? Yes. Yes an old story that's told, and this is, this is what John Newton, the, the former slave trader who, who wrote the hymn, um, Amazing Grace, he told, was, was noted for telling a story. Nobody knows whether the story's true, but it's a good story, and it's been handed down for decades, for hundreds of years, actually, about Alexander the Great, and somebody, he, his, his son wants to marry a man's daughter, and the man comes to him and demands an unreasonable sum for Alexander the Great's son to marry his daughter. And so he asks for this sum, and Alexander the Great says, yes, go talk to the treasurer. And it's such a grand sum that, that the treasurer says, I, I, I can't give you that much money without direct order from Alexander. So he goes to Alexander and he says, do you realize what what's being asked for here? He said, yes, I do. Give it to him. Because by his asking, he shows me honor in that I am wealthy and generous. That I have everything and I'm well generous to give it. That shows me honor. Give it. The request shows the character that I have. Now, if Alexander the Great can say that, what does God do? When God says, give me no rest. When his son says, give my father no rest, that I will continue to do what he sent me to do and what we've promised that will be finished in the new heavens and new earth. What do you think God does out of that? Does that glorify him? It glorifies him immensely because then he does it and what do his people do? 
They give him glory for doing such a miraculous work and for letting us live in the midst of people coming to Christ. And if God would let us in a revival right within our own church and community and state, what if hundreds or thousands of people came because we gave God glory by giving him no rest and were faithful and loud and bold raising the signal of Jesus Christ? Then the world would know that we are the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, that we are a nation uh, that were, is called sought out. We didn't do it. God sought us. You didn't seek him. He sought you. And he gave you the ability to respond to him because he is a gracious God and a city, a people not forsaken. In the midst of a world that has a church that looks like it's forsaken, he has his people that are constantly raising the signal, that are constantly living according to their new name, and are constantly bringing glory and to the, to the world in the way that they live. I don't know about you, but that is a motivating commitment that I want to make and to be more faithful to it. And it all brings God glory. And it is the summary of everything that we've been learning. Now, we're not done in Isaiah. Next week, you might wish that he had stopped here. <laughs> but it's the constant reminder that his people continue to fail. And even when we fail, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have revealed yourself as the sovereign one who has a plan, who is constantly working. And we are thankful that no matter what happens here, you will not be foiled. Your plan will not be foiled. You will lose no one. The son will lose no one that you intend to save. The world will come to your feet the world will be the footstool under Jesus' feet. We are a people, Father, who profess that we have head knowledge of, of who you are and what you have done, and yet we can fail you. We fail you in our own lives, and we fail you uh, in the way we crucify our own sin. We fail you in the way we pray. We fail you in the way we lift up the signal of Jesus Christ, and yet you are still faithful. And we know that if we are your pe people, your children, you will hold us fast in all of this. That there is nothing that will cause us to be separated from the love, your love, in Christ Jesus. So help us, Father, to be not only full of head knowledge, not only full of the head knowledge that this is a beautiful chapter with, with wonderful imagery, but connect it with our hearts, that our hearts might be turned towards you even greater, that our lives would reflect your glory to the nations in a way that was not yesterday, and that we would be faithful in our praying and faithful in our proclaiming so that you advance your kingdom through this church. And when we fail, remind us that you hold us fast and nothing will thwart your faithfulness. So thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.